want to invite you um, to turn to the prophet Isaiah this morning. We're going to look at Isaiah chapters 1 and 2 together. And Isaiah is, in many ways, one of the, the key sort of um, mouthpieces of our Advent hope. And this morning we're going to think particularly what, about what Isaiah uh, promises us in the area of peace. This second, second Sunday of Advent uh, centers on uh, the expectation, the anticipation, uh, the preparing of our hearts for the kind of peace God desires to bring. Peace is, is one of those you know, key topics that comes up every Advent. It's something we pray for as a church throughout the year, but especially in this season. But I know that that, that word means lots of different things to different people. And I fear that the, the idea of peace can feel superficial sometimes. The idea of peace can even sound a bit naive when we, we survey the amount of conflict and, and violence and struggle that's part of the world in which we live, maybe part of the, the relationships and experiences we have as people. And so we, we may wonder, is peace even possible for us? There's a, a famous short story that was written just after the conclusion of World War I. Uh, it was written by uh, a British satirist named Hector Monroe. You may have read it in high school or college in an anthology of of world literature, but the, the story is called The Toys of Peace. And it's a, it's a humorous story, like most satire is, but it's also deeply cynical. In the story, there is a, a young mother in Britain, and uh, she has two young boys at home. And these two young boys love their toy soldiers. They love to play and to enact war, right? They, they have sort of like G.I. Joes in my generation. They're always fighting with their toys together and enacting the great battles of history. And the mother is distressed by this tendency in her boys. And one day she's reading the newspaper and she learns about an advertisement uh, from a new organization called the National Peace Council. And they have developed a new line of toys for young children to play with called the Toys of Peace. And so in, in place of toy soldiers, they've created statuettes of economists and politicians and great humanitarian leaders. And in place of military forts or toy tanks, they've created scale models of the great libraries of the world and social institutions. And so the, the mother is, is intrigued and excited about this, and she writes to uh, their relative, her brother, the boy's uncle, and she asks him to buy a set of these toys while he's in London and to bring them on his next visit at Easter. And so the uncle comes on Easter day and he brings the, the, the boys these new toys. And he explains to them the sort of vision of, of peace and, and, and harmony that each of these toys represent and, and the idea of social progress that, that, that is embodied in these playthings. And he gives them the toys, and he leaves them in the nursery to play with them on their own for a while, to test them out. And uh, the story uh, resolves when the uncle comes back an hour later to see how things are going. And he finds that the boys have taken these great humanitarian leaders, and they've, they've gotten out their model paints, and they've repainted them in battle uniforms. 
And they've, they've amassed them in new armies, and they are currently laying siege to the headquarters of the YWCA in London. And they had taken these toys of peace and with great creativity, right, redesigned them as instruments of war. And I think that, that short story sort of explores, right, how do you retrain the human heart, the human mind, human relationships to desire peace? This morning, I, I want to acknowledge right, the, the reality that conflict and chaos and division is pervasive in our world. So much so that, that the making of peace, the praying for peace, requires more than just modifying our behaviors in some external way. Right? We could swap one set of toys for another, we could swap one set of social or political ideals for another. But if our, if our hearts, if our minds, if our relationships, if our desires are still set on chaos, we may find we just make new ways to, to create war and conflict in place of the old. So I want to look with you at what Isaiah says about peace, or, or rather what God speaks about peace through the prophet Isaiah at the start of that book. And, it, and, and it's done, it's unfolded for us in, in a remarkable way in that uh, God gives Isaiah two sort of parallel visions. There's a vision that comes at the start of chapter one, there's another vision given at the start of chapter two, and they are, are sort of the antithesis of one another. The first vision is one filled with disorder and with chaos and with the violence of our world. Isaiah chapter 1. The second vision, which was our Advent reading this morning, the Smith, the Smith family read for us, sees that, that same world but transformed and reordered and reset with a, a vision of the, the rule and reign of God's peace. What I'd love for us to, to consider this morning is how does that change happen? What causes the chaos in the first vision to give way to the, the peace and flourishing and shalom described in the second one? So let me pray for us as we open up to those two visions this morning. Lord Jesus, we... Proclaim in this Advent season that you are the Prince of Peace. That you are the embodiment, you are the full presence of our mighty God sent to deal with the deepest things in our hearts. To settle the deepest disputes and conflicts in our world. And we pray in a small but powerful way this morning that our worship and our, our willingness to take in your word would move us closer to this restoring vision of peace that you have for all people. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing, be moving in, in a greater conformity to your thoughts and your heart. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. I'm going to read to you from Isaiah 1 to start. 
I'm going to move through sort of some excerpted passages. It's a rather long vision, so I'll grab a few pieces, but you can follow along in your Bibles if you have them open. This is uh, what I would say is, is largely a dystopian vision that God gives Isaiah in chapter 1. A world that's in chaos, a world that might actually remind us uh, of, of things we see in our own world, in our own time. Isaiah 1, 1. This vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah saw, Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, and listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to this sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Moving down to verse 6, Isaiah continues. He says, From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores. Not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left to you like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Moving down to verse 15 and following. He says, When you spread out your hands now in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening, for your hands are full of blood. Wash, make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right, to seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now. Let us settle this matter, says the Lord. In this vision, which I've just sort of given you highlights from in chapter 1, I think the, the Lord identifies or exposes, he actually calls the heavens and the earth to be his witnesses as he, as he speaks to his people about what has given rise to this condition of chaos. And I want to I point out three things very briefly that I think, again, make it possible, that, that lay the groundwork for the kinds of things Isaiah describes here. Firstly, we're, we're told that this is a vision about a, a concrete time and a concrete place in history. Verse 1 says it's, it's a vision given to Isaiah, the prophet, to describe what life was like and what life was going to be like in the province of Judah 
particularly in the capital city of Jerusalem, over a span of about 50 or 60 years. Right? It names four different kings who, who ruled over Israel at that time. And if we go back and consult the historical record, we see that this was indeed a tumultuous period of Judah's history. Right? If you can picture that part of, of the world and the map that you would see there, right? Judah is this tiny little place, an insignificant power, but it's surrounded by the superpowers of their day. Right? You had Assyria to the east, you had Egypt to the west and south, and they were always going back and forth, trampling Israel, marching through Judah and Jerusalem. In addition to, to those those superpowers, there were local rivals that were always battling at Israel's borders, like Philistia and, and Samaria, which was actually part of the, the northern kingdom of Israel. And so Isaiah is speaking to God's people at a time when peace was very much eroding, when things were fragile, when, when chaos was, was characteristic of what people were experiencing. And as God unfolds that, that vision of what's taking place in Isaiah's day, he says that chaos maybe firstly has come to this people because of a breakdown in their relationship with him. He says that chaos begins when people forget their creator. You look at verses 2 through 4 there, chapter 1. God says, my own children have forgotten me. They have rebelled against me. He says that they have, have turned their backs on him and, and walked their own way. And so fundamentally, peace breaks down, Isaiah says, when we forget the one who created us. When we forget the author and the creator of, of all things, but of, of shalom, of peace itself. We can't have peace when that relationship is fractured. And so what begins as a breakdown between God and his people continues to, to spill out and to have further implications as this vision continues. Chaos begins by forgetting our creator, but very quickly it, it proceeds to set the people that have been created against one another, right? nation against nation. As you read on through verses 6, 7, and 8, right, you see violence being ushered into Isaiah's world. There's a, there's a very real connection between these two things, between what we worship and how we treat one another. Right? And when, when, we, when we move away from the idea that we were all created by one God, right, all dignified with his image, all of, of great value and worth to him, Right, then it, it becomes very attractive to see our neighbors as those we're in competition with. Right, to, to see those that we live beside as, as people we long to control and, and to meet our desires through them. And so in his vision, Isaiah sees the, the brutality that Judah experiences during his lifetime. Right, as their land was stripped bare as their crops were destroyed, as their cities were laid siege by the Assyrians. And they, they suffer this condition of chaos, right, of nation set against nation. 
and devastation. But a little later in that same vision, we see that it's not only Israel's neighbors, it's not just the nations out there that have blood on their hands, but that God calls into account the people of God, the people of Judah themselves. Look at verses 15 and following. He says, even you, when you come into my house, when you come to a place of prayer, your hands are full of blood. He says that that God's people have allowed the chaos of the world in which they live to pervert and to corrupt the worship of God itself. Verses 15, 16, and 17, God actually condemns their religiosity. He condemns their, their religious pleasantries. He condemns their moral performance. He condemns the offerings they bring to him. And he condemns them because he says, you have no equal appetite or desire for justice. God says, if you have no love for the oppressed, if you have no concern for the fatherless or the widow, then your prayers for peace aren't just, they're not just naive, but they are offensive, God says. He says, when his people prayed at this time, he was no longer listening to what they were praying for because their hearts had an idol in his place. And so in in total, this vision in chapter 1 that God gives Isaiah is dystopian. It's, it's, It's discouraging. It's gloomy. But I think it It's honest in that it it names a number of the things that we still see in our own experience, in our own world today, right? People spiritually adrift, nations threatening nations, people in conflict with one another, religiosity and religion plagued by hypocrisy and self-centeredness. And so we we couldn't ever accuse the prophet Isaiah of of wearing rose-colored glasses when it comes to to speaking about peace. But I think with that first vision as the backdrop of the first thing Isaiah says, it makes what he has to say in chapter 2 all the more remarkable. Because on the heels of this dire chaos and disorder and violence and destruction, God then sends a second vision to Isaiah. And it's actually a vision of the very same places, the very same people. But in this vision, things are entirely reordered. It's like a a puzzle where you move the pieces around and somehow an entirely different image comes out. So let me read to you, starting in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is what... Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, this time that is to come, the Lord promises. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. 
The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and he will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. My question for us is, what happens between vision one and vision two? Right? How does this, this incredible chaos Isaiah sees at first give way to this period, this, 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 this environment, these, these relationships of peace described in chapter two? Well, I think the first thing that Isaiah says takes place has to do with worship. Has to do specifically with the elevation of the temple in Jerusalem, which might seem like an odd way to begin the peace talks or peace pursuits to us. But in, in Isaiah's vision, the, the temple mountain in Jerusalem literally gets this elevation boost. Right, if, you, if you go on Google Maps right now, you'll see that the temple mount lays at about 2,400 feet above sea level. That doesn't even put it at the top 10 mountains in Israel, let alone any other part of the world. Right? It's every, every other mountain around it, the Mount of Olives, is higher than the Temple Mountain, which is just across the way. But in this vision, the, the mountain of the temple becomes perched on, on the highest mountain around, Isaiah says. And whether we take this image to be literal or, or metaphorical, I think the, the idea, the emphasis is that worship is becoming paramount in this day, in this moment. Right back in chapter 1, we saw how mere religiosity was, was impotent to bring about the things God desired. Right? Religiosity cannot address justice and love of neighbor and, and the restoration of relationships and the reordering of things into peace. But Isaiah says, real Worship can. In fact, it must. Isaiah's vision is that, that worship has to be at the, at the ground level, at the groundwork of where peace comes from. The possibility for peace arises when God is the focal point of our desires, of our attention, of our worship. There's a powerful argument in this, I think, for doing precisely what we do every year during Advent, right? For allowing the, the scriptures, the promises, the prophecies we read in Advent, the, the psalms, the carols, the hymns that we give place to, the liturgies of Advent, to, to have their place because they are, in essence, trying to turn our attention, trying to, to create that sense of elevation and, and, and glorification of who God is, of what his desire, what his vision of peace looks like. Right? They open up a greater space in our lives for worship. They turn that instinct about everything being about me and about my desires on its head. Right? And, it, and it turns our gaze in a different direction. So peace elevates the place of worship to begin with. 
The second thing we see in this vision is that the, the nations that were present back in that first vision, the ones that were trampling Judah and laying siege to the Temple Mount and, and leaving the nation burnt, scorched, right? They're back again in this same vision, but this time they're in Jerusalem with a different purpose in mind, right? They've come, Isaiah says, to worship in that place. And he says in verse 2, he, he has this picture of this, this sort of supernaturally flowing stream that actually goes uphill, right? Water flowing uphill. He says the nations are like a river that are flowing up to the temple mountain and they're pouring into the courts of the Lord together. And I think Isaiah would have pictured, his, his audience would have pictured right, the people of Judah alongside the armies of Assyria. Right, the people of Egypt beside the people of northern Israel and Samaria drawn together into the same place to worship the same God. That's the picture here. It, it would be like, like us trying to picture the people of, of China and Taiwan and the U.S., the people of Russia and the Ukraine and, and the people of Iran and Israel right, being brought to one single sanctuary to worship on the same day. Now, that, that's sort of cosmic and grand and maybe something we, we feel like is far off. But I think we could apply this passage and say that, that peace begins when we allow worship to draw us into the presence of people we would otherwise stay separate from. Right? When we have a vision of God that is, is true and authentic enough, it will, it will put us next to people that we wouldn't normally worship beside so that God can begin to break down those walls of chaos that separate us. Right? That's his desire in the vision he gives Isaiah. So peace elevates the place of worship. Peace brings these warring factions together into one place. And as, as Isaiah's vision continues, we see that as those nations arrive in that single place of worship, they have a disarming experience. Isaiah says they begin to learn directly from the Lord what he's about, how he works, what his ways are, what his words are, what his law is, how to walk in his pathways. And I love that as, as that image continues, it says the nations, as they're drawn there, as they come together, as they experience the presence of God with them, they also bring all their grudges, all their disputes all their grievances, into that place of worship. Right? I can imagine them describing to God who did what to whom and what took place. And the Lord doesn't silence them. He listens to them. And as part of the act of worship, he brings judgment. He resolves disputes. He reconciles these warring parties. And in verse 4, it says that, that the Lord makes peace among them. In the great wisdom of God, he gets down to the bottom, the roots of these conflicts. So much so that the end result, Isaiah says, is that these nations lay their weapons down. 
right? They came in that first image when they were streaming into the temple. They still had their spears and their swords. They were armed to the teeth like they were before. But now they surrender them. And in a way that only God can do, he takes the instruments of war, right? It's, it's the opposite of that short story. They take the instruments of peace and turn them into instruments of war. God takes instruments of war and he resets them to be things that fashion flourishing. Garden tools, right? So that the nations, instead of staining the soil with blood, begin to cultivate crops from that soil. And again, there, there is a, a cosmic and ultimate way in which God will do this, but even now we can begin to do this work by asking what weapons, what disputes, what grudges do you bring into the sanctuary of God? This Advent, what, what things might you still be holding in your hands even as you stand to worship God? And how could your worship this year be, be a prayer for God to disarm those things? Maybe even to repurpose them somehow. Fourthly, the, the last detail in this vision, I think, might be the most important. In verse 5, Isaiah concludes this shorter vision by saying, Come, children of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Old Testament scholar John Goldengay points out that, that that phrase in Hebrew, which appears throughout the Old Testament, most often is, is a reference to the face of God. That when God looks upon his people, they, they see his light, the light of his countenance. You can think about that blessing, right? May the Lord bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you. I think the idea here is, again, it's, it's restoring what went wrong back in, in that first vision, right? When the people forgot their creator, when they turned their back away from the face of God. Isaiah says that when we look upon God and when God looks upon us, the result is deliverance, it's justice, it's restoration, it's peace. Isaiah says, peace is about looking at a person, seeing the face of God. So I think that's why at Advent, we, we as the church focus all of our energy and our attention on one thing. On the incarnation of God. Right? That, that moment in cosmic history when God poured all of his energy and his attention into taking his full glory his full revelation, his full light, and putting them into a human being who was born of flesh. Someone that we could look upon face to face and behold his glory, and behold what he is like. So this morning, as, as the conclusion to our worship, we're going to gather as God's people around a table, right? around the table of the Lord's Supper. Because there's, there's no better place to get to know someone, to see them face to face, than at a meal around a table. 